Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, listeners. This week's episode is part two of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas case in Parkland, Florida. Part one, as we always do, is about peeling back the layers of the how and why a particular mass shooting happens. So if you aren't familiar with this case, you may wish to go back and listen to it before listening to this week's one, because this week we want you to join us in remembering all the victims who lost their life at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas on February the 14th, 2018. And we'll be joined by a very special guest. I'm Ryan Petty. My daughter Elena was killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on February 14th, 2018. And since that time, I've become a public safety and school safety advocate. Ryan, I think it's so important to humanize every aspect of what we're doing. First, I would just want to ask you, could you tell us a little bit about Elena? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Wonderful young lady, 14-year-old, just starting to understand and have fun in the world and figure out who she was. Uh, Very strong-willed young lady. The thing I thing I probably miss about her the most was her, oh, dad, or it was really, oh, papa. Uh, She called me papa. Oh, papa. And it was her way of expressing some level of disappointment with what I had just said or what I had just done. (laughs) And so just an incredible moral compass. She knew right from wrong, very, very young. and was very concerned with morality, what was right and what was wrong and treating people fairly, being friends with everyone, especially those that were marginalized. And so she, she took that very seriously. She blew me away. I learned more from her in the 14 years we had together than, than I know she learned from me. So I miss her. I miss her a lot. Uh, Hardest part for me has been thinking about all of the things that I'll miss with her. Her mother and I walked up and received her honorary diploma from high school, as an example. I won't get to see that. Won't get to see her enter and graduate from college. Won't get to walk her down the aisle, so to speak. And it, these are all the things I was looking forward to do with her. But the thing that I miss the most is just 
her rolling her eyes and saying, oh, Papa, <laughs> you know, just, and then thinking about, okay, what did I do? I love that. Yeah. I love that. You know, I have two girls of my own and I appreciate that every day is a gift. You never mm-hmm. know. And you've lived the terrible side of that. And I wonder if your daughter would have graduated mm-hmm. just this past year, where do you think she'd be right now? Yeah, she'd be at university. I'm not sure what she would have been studying, but that's where she'd be right now. I I know she loved learning and she loved to have fun and loved to be around her friends. And the group of friends that she was with all had plans to go to college. Her best friend is actually in college now. Her best friend was a year older than she was, so she's a sophomore. And that's where Elena would have been, Mm -hmm. is uh, there with friends. Remember the last time you guys were together? You probably get asked that a lot, but I guess I just was curious. Yeah, you know, it's almost four years. We four years here next week, right? And I I still remember I, I had a business trip to the Bahamas. So I worked for a telecom company, and one of the companies we owned was the Bahamian Telephone Company. So I was there on a business trip on February 12th and 13th. And I was pretty excited about that trip because it was the Bahamas. And I remember bragging about getting to go to the Bahamas, which when you live in South Florida is not that big of a deal because it really is like the same temperature. I mean, there's more beaches and it's the Bahamas, but it's really like, what, 30, 40 miles away. It's not that far away. But I was really excited about that. I remember her rolling her eyes and just going, oh, yeah, rough life, something like that. And I came back from that trip on the evening of the 13th. And we had a normal evening on the 13th. And I had meetings early on the 14th in Miami. And if you know anything about South Florida, Parkland and Miami are not exactly close together. It was about a 52 mile drive. I remember this exactly. 52 mile drive from my home to our office in Miami. And I had an 8 a.m. meeting. So I got up early and I started driving and I missed my opportunity to say goodbye to her that morning. And I, uh, boy, that's been hard. You know, you cherish every moment. You never know. And where were my priorities that day? Was it about work and those kinds of things, which I don't mean to diminish. And they certainly are important. You have to, you have to earn a living to pay for the home and food and things and care for your child. But I missed an opportunity to say goodbye to her that morning and I'll never get that back. Ryan, I know that grief can be a really paralyzing thing for people, but I know that only three weeks after the shooting, you managed to actually help get a bill passed. Can you tell us what it took for you to find the strength to make that happen in those, what I guess must be three very, very raw weeks? There were things that that brought me out of that grieving mode, I, maybe not entirely out of the grieving mode, but certainly into the action mode. One was a good friend who's our governor at the time, Governor Scott, who had reached out to all of the families that were impacted. And in my estimation, he felt not exactly what we were feeling, but as a grandfather and a father, he felt the loss and he was determined to do something about it, not to let this tragedy be for not. And so we had several conversations actually. And he said, I'll never forget this. We were literally buying Elena's casket at the funeral home. He said, I need your help. I, he said, I think we have an opportunity to make a change and make this mean something, but I can't do it without you. He said, would you be willing to help? 
So that was was a positive interaction, I, I thought, and, and I believed him. And we did make change. On the other side of it was this media frenzy that descended upon Parkland. And it was all of the big media companies from literally around the world. And the more I started to understand about what happened and particularly the events leading up to the tragedy and the opportunities that were there to prevent this from happening, the more I believed that the narrative was going off track. And I kept thinking, oh my gosh, here we go again. We're going to do this one more time and we're not going to get anything done. And I can't let Elena's life or her death, really, her life means more than I can ever relate, but I can't let her death be for nothing. And so that made me angry for, I think, the right reasons, right? Sort of a righteous indignation that this narrative is going off the track and we need to get it back on track. And so I called the governor up and I said, what do we do? I have no idea how to pass legislation in the state of Florida. I don't know anybody. And he said, I'll be in Miami tomorrow. Join me for a a press conference. And then we're going to tour the state. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Right. And I think that there are people who have this kind of violence affect them. And then they wonder, what's the answer? What's the solution? In your case, if you were speaking to parents who fear they'll be impacted by this violence, would you tell them a particular course they should take? I mean, I'm guessing you never thought this was going to happen to you. No, Parkland was an idyllic suburb of Miami. Wonderful place. I think it had been named the safest city in Florida. The year before, this was the place you went to get to good schools and and live in relative peace. This was not something we ever could have imagined. And to answer your question, I think really what I would tell parents now is 
you have to be aware of what's going on at, at your kids' schools and really aware. And we thought we were involved parents. We thought we knew what was going on. My wife has volunteered at every school my kids have ever been at. Been at. And Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is no different. There wasn't an inkling of a potential threat, although administrators knew that there was a threat, that this former student had brought weapons to campus, was violent, had not been dealt with appropriately through a threat assessment process, et cetera, et cetera, and that he had made threats to the school. Law enforcement was aware of things. Anyway, we just weren't aware. And so there are questions that parents should be asking. And one of those, I would say, is what is your policy for dealing with threats on campus? Mm -hmm. Understand the district and school policy. And then once you understand it, if you agree with it, then great. The next question is, how is it being implemented? Is it working? How do you deal with these threats? You know, Mr. or Mrs. Principal of the school or do subordinates deal with it? Understand the process so that you can be involved in it. And then the third thing I would say, and this goes back to some legislation we passed just last year here in Florida, parents need to be notified when there are threats. My biggest regret is not knowing that there was a problem. If I had known there was a threat to the school, we may have made different decisions. Depending on the level of information we had and the specificity, we certainly, if we had known something was going to happen that day or could have happened that day, Elena would not have been going to school. I, I can guarantee that. So parents need to be made aware of potential threats and, and violence on school campuses. And I think those three things would change the dynamic. Ryan, can I ask if you had those conversations with Elena beforehand about any kind of school training at all? We had never had that kind of conversation beyond mm. the fire drills. What do you do when there's a fire drill? But my daughter's and my son that went to that school were all telling me there were warning signs. There were frequent fights at school right. between different groups. And I brushed them off. I brushed them off as sort of like, yeah, you know, we used to go behind the school when I was in high school and guys would work it out. But there was more activity that was probably more gang related than I cared to believe would be happening in this school. And the warning signs, I think, were there a little bit. And I think we just chalked them up to them making up stories or embellishing the stories a bit. You had kids still in school at the time. Did it change the way that you responded to the school? Yeah, my two oldest kids were in college at that point. But my, my youngest son was on campus that day. He was a junior at the time. And his last year, yeah, you, you bet, we were definitely on alert, worried that there might be a copycat or some contagion effect or whatever. But I mean, to say there was a law enforcement presence on that campus for the next year and, and certainly throughout the next school year would be understating it between the Florida Highway Patrol that was put there by the governor <laughs> to help because the community had lost faith in the local sheriff's office. Mm -hmm. So there was supplemental law enforcement there. There was a lot of protections at that school, new principal and different things like that, that gave us a, a little bit more confidence. But that was a question that we asked our son. Do you really want to go back to that school? And he said, dad, I owe it to Elena to go back to that school and finish there and not let people believe I'm afraid. So he finished his senior year there. You're working at the state level now, which most people don't have an opportunity to do. Could you describe what you're doing at the state level? Sure. So 
Governor Scott appointed me to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission, which is a mouthful. But, you know, after these tragedies, government tends to put these, quote unquote, blue ribbon commissions together to figure out what is going on. And uh, a lot of commissions end up, particularly at the federal level, the commission sort of do some political theater and nothing really gets done. And the governor said, I don't want that to be this case. I can't think of a person on that commission that hasn't been 100% focused on understanding the problem and, and, and creating change. But the governor put two fathers on that commission also to give us an opportunity to let's say, make sure that things get done. So I'm one of the two fathers that serves on that commission. So we had a five-year charter. We've got one more year of activity that we'll look at, but our responsibility by law, by statute, was to do a complete investigation and an independent investigation of the school district, law enforcement response, and the mental health services that were offered or denied to the attacker and look at it holistically. We were also to look at other incidents of violence across school districts in the state of Florida. The first three years, there was so much to learn and understand about what happened at MSD that we spent most of our time on that. We are reconvening this year. We met last year, we're reconvening this year. And assuming we get a bill through the legislature this year and signed by the governor, that will be three bills that have come through the process in the state of Florida based on recommendations of the MSD commission. And we've changed a lot about school safety in the state of Florida and making sure districts are accountable. So that's one area. The second area was in January of 2020, just before the pandemic broke, I was appointed to the Florida State Board of Education, which has the responsibility to oversee. It's really K through 20 education. So it's all the K through 12 schools in the state of Florida and the 28 state colleges that are around the state. So my responsibilities there are to help guide and direct and pass regulations that manage how we deliver public education in the state of Florida. Florida is one of the more populated states mm -hmm. in the United States. So that's a big responsibility to make decisions and, and what to do uh, with the kids to keep them safe. But the United States has 50 million students in school. So I don't see there as being a one-size-fits-all, obviously. Every school is different. Every university is different. How do you decide at the state level what to impose on a school? It's a great question, and I agree with you. I think what works in Florida may not work in Mississippi or Wyoming and may not be needed in those states. So I like what we call them here on this side of the pond, right, the laboratories of democracy. So you've got 50 attempts to get it right. And I don't think there's a federal solution to this, by the way. I think this so much of education is done at the state level. It's really part of the state constitution for each state mm -hmm. or commonwealth. And it really that's really where education, or at least public education, that's really where it happens. So the balance, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge because there's certain things that we want the districts to do, that we know are solutions that will work, are things that will work. And then there are things that we have to let them try on their own. What's happening in South Florida is very different than what's happening in a rural county in Florida. Even within our state, you know, we've got what Miami-Dade is the fourth largest district, I think, in the country, if, about 350 plus thousand kids. You've got Broward, where Parkland is, 
with a little over 250,000 students. It's like the sixth largest district in the country. And then we've got counties in Florida with three schools. And so what we impose there doesn't necessarily work in a smaller county. Case in point, every district in the state of Florida has to have a person responsible for, it's called the school safety specialist. And it's a district level position that the buck stops with them with regards to school safety. In a county like Miami-Dade or County Broward in a larger county, it's a position that you know reports to the superintendent and those responsibilities end up in that office. And that office probably has a staff. In the case of Miami-Dade, it's the chief of school police. And that chief of school police has a department with lots of officers and a budget, and that's how they protect it. In a smaller county, that responsibility, that title can actually sit with the superintendent. So we have to have enough flexibility to allow for that. But at the same time, we provide the same training to Miami-Dade that that small county superintendent will get. And I've sat in these meetings where you've got a superintendent or a superintendent's designee that's filling in that role that to, to sit there in that training and go through that with, with the Office of Safe Schools here in Florida. It, it works. The balance is saying we know we need somebody responsible to make sure that the law is complied with and the regulations are complied with and that staff are properly trained to understand things like warning signs and make sure that we're following process and procedure. Things we know that will keep our schools safe is like locking the doors and making sure the fences are closed and locked and that there's a single point of entry, those kinds of things. That's what that position does. And that works regardless of the size of district. But in a big, complex district like Miami, there may be more crimes committed on school property, so you need a police force. And so there's flexibility to do that. And it's a constant battle to understand how much do we dictate versus how much do we let each district figure it out on their own. But the guiding principle, there are things that we know we can do to prevent these tragedies and to mitigate the harm if one of these is to break out in our schools. And so those are the things we mandate and the things that we let the districts not figure out, but work on themselves or come up with their own solution just really depends on the size of the district and the complexity and the level of violence that they're dealing with. You're an expert now in this, you're immersed in it. But before Parkland happened, what was your knowledge of school shootings and your experience, say, if you saw a headline pop up on the news? Yeah, I remember thinking at Sandy Hook, and I've become friends with several of the Sandy Hook families, wonderful people. I kept thinking, oh, how horrible. I can't imagine. (laughs) I can't imagine what I would do if that happened to me. Yeah, here you are now in a situation where you know so many different things that those Sandy Hook parents knew. What do you think are some of the things that our listening audience doesn't know that they maybe should know? I think there's a lot more going on at your child's school than you're probably aware of. (laughs) And when they tell you, when they're brave enough to come home and tell you what's happening at their schools, you should pay attention to that. I ignored the warning signs. And with my wife working there, we thought we had a good handle on what was happening at the school. So I would talk to your kids. I would ask them questions. Um, They're going to be hesitant, reluctant to tell you all the things because that's just how teenagers are, particularly at that age. They don't always want to talk to mom and dad about what's going on at school and the challenges they've got. And there could even be situations where they're being bullied and they don't want to talk about it because they don't 
they're embarrassed or they don't want to bring that problem home. But communication with your kids and really understanding what's going on. And I think the second thing is really taking advantage of those opportunities to meet the staff, the administrators of the school and meet the teachers and build and form a relationship with them so that if something is happening, you've got a method of communication with the staff and the teachers at school. So if your child's feeling challenged at school or there's something going on, a teacher is comfortable enough to send you a text message and say, hey, something's wrong with your son or your daughter or grades are dropping off or there's some some of the warning signs that we see that there's a challenge. And this is not to say any of them are a threat. I'm just saying that there's something going on in their lives that you as a parent need to be aware of. Just open those lines of communication would be my recommendation. Try to get to know the adults in their lives at their schools. And then what should the policy be to keep kids and staff safe at schools? And we know the number one indicator of student success in education is parental involvement. That's true for keeping them safe at school too. In the United States, right, you buy a house in the nicest neighborhood and the best zip code so you can get your kids into the right schools. That's how we do it here, right? I bought into the best neighborhood I can get into. I got a good school. It's an A or B school. Mm-hmm. And then you go, ah, I'm done. You're not done. That's just the beginning. And that would be my message to parents. I'm a big fan of anonymous reporting systems. And we know now how successful it is to have that every school district, every community should have an anonymous reporting system. There should be a way to provide those tips. We also know that 80 to 90% of high school incidents, there's leakage and somebody knows. So how important is it, uh, given the information that you know now, to talk to your kids about the difference between telling on somebody and saving lives, basically. Yeah, it's the old see something, say something, do something notion. And so, you know, here in the state of Florida, we have several different apps and the districts can take the one the state's offered. Here's a great example of where do you dictate and mandate and where do you let the districts innovate on this? And there's a statewide reporting app called Fortify Florida. It works fantastic the students know about it. It's advertised in every school and there's posters on the wall and the kids know about it. And whether they want to have it on their phone or not is another issue, but they know where to get it and they know how to report incidents. And then districts have their own apps also to suit their needs. But it's taken a little bit of time to get students comfortable with the idea that reporting suspicious behavior, right? It's really about the behavior or activities, or if they know about two students planning to do something, if it's gotten to that planning stage, that it's okay to report that and that they can either remain anonymous if they choose to, which makes it easier for a lot of students that are struggling with whether or not it's right or or not. But what I like to tell parents and what I hope parents will tell their kids is, you know what? It could just be a joke but you never know. And so the best thing to do is just report it. And if you want to remain anonymous, you can remain anonymous. That's okay. Let the adults that have been trained to understand the warning signs and this sort of path to violence, let those adults sort it out for everyone's sake, because you just don't know. And I think Parkland, in most of the minds of the students in Florida, it's fading, but it's still relevant enough that they know that, hey, this could happen in my school. And of course, we've had dozens of incidents after where students were planning attacks on Florida schools. And because of leakage and because of these reporting apps and because the students that were aware of this or teachers and staff. Yeah. And parents. 
it's and parents, yep, it's been reported and action has been taken in Florida. And there are very stiff penalties in the state of Florida now for making a threat against the school. It's a felony. And so it's mm-hmm. taken very seriously. Law enforcement takes it seriously and they act on these threats without question. Did that law exist before Parkland? No. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. What's the change that you've been part of that you're most proud of? Great question. It's tough because we've done so much, but it's like a never-ending battle, uh, never-ending process. I think the thing I'm most proud of is that we now have implemented this process called behavioral threat assessment Mm -hmm. and management, BTAM for short. Obviously, Catherine will know about this from her days in law enforcement, but we've set out to train law enforcement in the state of Florida on this process. It's being used at all levels It's being led by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, who does the training for all of the law enforcement agencies in the state of Florida. I get to come in and be a part of talking about poorly implemented BTAM when I do the intro kickoff and talk to law enforcement officers. And I talk about when BTAM is not done well, what happens, what are the impacts But that's being done in the state of Florida. I'm very proud of that because that's not only keeping schools safe, it's keeping our communities and the public safe in general. We're taking threats seriously. We're investigating threats. And this is really interesting for me because I'm not in law enforcement, but I've been part of really transforming the way law enforcement does its job in the state of Florida. That management part is really important because we used to think 
that law enforcement show up after a crime's been committed. They arrest somebody and they put them in jail and they start that criminal justice process. That was the old thinking. I'm oversimplifying, but that's the old way of thinking. And now it's, hey, somebody's made a threat. Let's go investigate it. Let's bring resources to help. We're not necessarily going to arrest this person. They may or may not have made a specific threat, but they're in distress. There's something going on in their lives. And so let's manage that process. And it's not about just throwing everybody in jail. Now, if somebody has committed a crime, yeah, you still go through that criminal justice process. That hasn't changed. But this idea of managing these threats, I think it's been exciting for me to be a part of that. And we've taken that behavioral threat assessment model and we've extended it into our schools. And so we're doing behavioral threat assessment as a function within schools and staff are being trained there in a multidisciplinary approach. So you've got educators involved and administrators and counselors and law enforcement is involved in those behavioral threat assessments. And that multidisciplinary approach has been tremendously impactful because all of those people bring a different perspective to what's maybe going on in that student's life. And so we're identifying threats earlier and we're bringing resources to bear that can turn that student onto a different and better path. So that's the part I'm most excited about and the part I'm most proud of. Ryan, when threat assessment doesn't work in a school system, what do you think some of the biggest factors are? Just painting with a big brush here. What are they doing wrong? They're doing it in name only. <laughs> and so what typically what happened, so here's what happened in Parkland. So we had an administrator that had never done a behavioral threat assessment before in charge of doing the behavioral threat assessment. And this administrator had never even filled out the form before and in fact didn't complete the form correctly and didn't do any of the follow-up. So the biggest failure has been in the implementation. It's not that people necessarily disagree with it, although there are, there's a lot of pushback on whether we should be doing this kind of thing in schools and students and all that, that kind of stuff, which tends to be more of a political argument of whether we should be doing it. But what fails when it's being done is really been in the training and implementation, operationalizing it. That has been the challenge. And that's where it failed in Parkland. I know that the anniversary is coming up next week. It's been four years. What does that day look like for you and your family? It's a quiet time together. I've typically taken the day off of work, just spent time with my family you know, Elena is, she's buried down in South Florida. I don't know that we'll go down there this year, but we've typically visited her at her gravesite as a family. And we get together and we just spend time and we talk about her. And I imagine <clears throat> we're kind of spread out now. My son's in college out West. My daughter's in college in Miami. My oldest son and his wife and our, our two grandsons are not too far away from us, about half an hour away. So they'll probably they may come over and spend uh, the day with us, but we'll probably just gather together as family and just remember Elena and try to get through the day together as a family. What, what is the hardest part about all of this? I know the answer to this and it's hard to say because I know I, uh, you know, I take this very personally. It's my responsibility as Elena's father to protect her. And I feel like I failed at that sacred responsibility. And uh, I, I look at my wife, we talk about this and I feel like I, I, I let her down. 
and I can't, there's nothing I can do about it. And that's the hardest part for me. Just right to the core. I feel like I should have done something and I, and I rack my brain trying to figure out what could I have done and what, what could I have done differently? And the more I learn about this, the more I find some solace in knowing that, boy, it wasn't just me. <laughs> no, nobody really was dealing with this in a way that I could have known about it and done something about it. But it still, as a father, is my responsibility to protect my kids. And I, and I, and I didn't do that. And that's hard. Do you have any message of hope that you would give to listeners? Yeah, I'm not superstitious in any way, but I've got lots of wood here on the table. I mean, we have gone four years without a significant tragedy in the state of Florida. That's not true for the rest of the country. And I'm very concerned about coming out of this pandemic, the impact to the mental health of the students. This has been unprecedented and every state's dealt with it slightly differently. But the one thing we know that a lot of these attacks come after an extended break in Mm -hmm. attendance. So I've worried about that. I've been on alert wondering, are these students that have been stressed in a way sort of unprecedented in our lifetimes anyway, what will that impact of that be as they return to school? So I hope that we're on alert. I hope that we're watching for the signs. And there certainly have been, at least in the United States, hundreds of millions of dollars poured into education by the federal government. And that money is earmarked for keeping schools safe. And Mm -hmm. so I hope districts will take those dollars, use that to make sure that the students coming back are not only safe from the impacts of COVID, but also they're looking very seriously at the mental health of those students who, for some, school is the respite that they get every day from a chaotic world. Maybe they're living in less than ideal situations and and it's pure chaos and school was that respite for them. I'm hoping schools will take that responsibility seriously and use those unprecedented levels of dollars coming from the federal government to take some responsibility to do the right thing there. That gives me some hope, but I'm also hopeful that, you know, I can just say in the state of Florida, things are working we made recommendations based on what we learned about what happened in Parkland. And you don't want to do that based on just one tragedy. So we looked at many, we talked to the experts and we listened to the recommendations and we put those into laws and regulations in the state of Florida. And I believe our schools are far safer than they were before. So I take some comfort and it gives me some hope that things will be better. Have you had a chance outside of the Parkland parents? Have you been contacted by any parents? So not Parkland parents, but others? Yeah, I don't want to say specific names, but mm-hmm. I, you know, San, the Santa Fe High School shooting happened very soon after Parkland, and we became pretty close with those families. The Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, that happened right after, and that was uh, something I know a lot of the families in Parkland reached out, even though it wasn't a school, but it was just so similar. And some of the things there, we've met, obviously, Columbine parents and Sandy Hook parents and formed friendships and relationships with those families. It's interesting. They shake their heads and just, you know, like it's welcome to this club that none of us wanted to be in. That's what we all say. Um Oh, Saugus High School in California met one of the fathers there when we were on a tour with the Secret Service talking about their latest report in 2019, and that tragedy happened there. And we met one of the fathers. I remember looking at him and thinking, 
oh my gosh, that was me uh, a year ago. And just the look on his face of just the loss and just what do I do? And it was a wonderful opportunity to comfort him a little bit. There were three of us there. And one of the Sandy Hook moms was with us. So the four of us wrapped our arms around that father that was grieving and trying to understand what had happened at his child's school. And just anyway, yes, I've gotten to know know, several others that have experienced these tragedies and not just school shootings and religious attacks, but I've met some other activists in the community. There's a woman in Miami, and I won't say her name, but her son was killed in gang violence in Miami. And it's just heartbreaking because Mm -hmm. for her, and my heart breaks for her because she has been screaming from the rooftops. They still don't know who did it. You know, we know who did it. And we know this attacker's on trial and there'll be a conclusion and we will quote unquote get justice, right? She's still searching for justice. It just breaks my heart. And because it was gang violence in the wrong neighborhood and it was just her son, you know, my heart breaks for her. She just doesn't have the voice that we were given. So I don't know what to do about those kinds of situations other than to wrap my arms around her and just say, hey, we hear you and we're trying to make your community safer too. And we'll work together with you to do that. But yeah, that one, I don't have an answer for yet. That's tough. You know, you're carrying a big load, Ryan. I see it because, you know, of my time in federal service and 9-11, right? Can't get bigger than that in terms of a national tragedy and right. in terms of the death and destruction and how you try to manage things. You're carrying a really heavy yoke. Yeah, but it's what Elena would want me to do. I know she would want me to speak up and she'd want me to do something about this. I know she would do something about it. You're her voice. I try to be. Yeah, I try to be. And the yoke is easier to carry because in our case, we've got 16 other families that are pulling along with us and we all do different things at different times and carry different loads. And I get that. Not everybody's having a good day. So we help each other out and lift each other up. But that, that has been... Oh boy, it sounds so wrong to say it this way, but you know, one of the blessings of this was to have the the other families which we've grown close to. I've got some really good friendships that have come from this that I never asked for and never sought, but they've turned out to be friends and we lift each other up and we hold each other up when we need to. And that's when I talk about this mom in Miami that lost her son, she doesn't have anybody like that. That's what mm. that's what my heart breaks for her. It's cuz she doesn't have anybody she can lean on necessarily that's gone through the same thing she did. And there are others that I know she can, but it's not the same. Anyway, that that is where I think we as families, we've, we started an organization called Stand With Parkland, and we lean on each other. And Stand With mm-hmm. Parkland, we hope, is a resource for parents and legislators to really understand what works and what solutions they should be pushing forward. And so we focus on that and we've had some success in making change here in the state of Florida and done some things at the federal level that needed to be done. But yeah, it's been great to have that group to kind of work together to solve this problem. You must get really exhausted talking about it. Do you feel like you have to raise your voice when people aren't willing to talk about this hard subject? It gets harder. The further we get away from the tragedy, the harder this gets. The Mm. impact in the weeks and months up to maybe the first anniversary, Mm -hmm. everybody wanted to talk to us about what had happened and what we thought should be done to to prevent this. The further we get away, the harder it becomes. Memories fade. I get it. That's why 
we try so hard to keep the memory of our loved ones at the forefront. You know, this is who we lost and this is what happens when we don't act on information. And so that's really been the mission of the families. And we've done good things, both the federal and the state level, as far as updating laws and driving awareness. But again, I think my message is really to parents. And that's why I love the opportunity to speak with both of you. Parents, you have a an obligation to understand what's going on in your child's life. And school is a big part of that. And those administrators and that staff need to understand that you take that very seriously and you want them to. So be involved in those decisions, understand how they handle these situations and know that there's probably a lot more going on at your school than you suspect and that you want to understand how the principal and the staff at that school are handling those situations. And if you don't feel comfortable, then you need to take it to that school board And if you're not getting the answers at that school board, like in the state of Florida, you can take those issues right to the Office of Safe Schools and find that person at whatever level that will listen and Mm -hmm. take action. And there are good people out there that will do that and understand how important this is. But as a parent, you've got to fight for the safety of your child, whether they're at home with you or at school. We really appreciate you sharing all of that with us. You know, I appreciate the opportunity, you know, especially at this time of year when we're thinking about the tragedy and thinking about our loved ones. I know all the families appreciate the opportunity to talk about our loved ones and share a little bit about them. I think we just don't want them to be forgotten. And if I could convey anything, it's just this tragedy has befallen me personally and our family. It's impacted us the most, but I just wish the community understood what they lost when Elena was killed. She would have been a wonderful woman, a wonderful citizen. And as a country, as a nation, as a world, we really lost out that day when she was killed. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better 
train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy, and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy, and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.